Welcome to the Ottawa Life Magazine podcast, coming to you from the heart of Canada's capital in downtown Ottawa. For the past 25 years, Ottawa Life has been the go-to print and online platform to discuss politics, music, art, social, and international issues, and more to keep you up to date. Thanks for tuning in with us today. Hello again, everyone. It's Dan Donovan coming to you live from downtown Ottawa in the nation's capital with another episode of the Ottawa Life Magazine podcast. Now, I have to tell you, but a year ago this time, last August, August 2022, I got up uh, one morning and I was reading the news about education in our province, which I follow closely. And I was surprised to hear Stephen Lecce, who is the Minister of Education in the Doug Ford government, make a claim uh, that day that apparently the teachers in Ontario were seeking a 52% pay increase. The education uh you know, union, as as he said. And I thought, that's insane. Nobody's going to get a 52% pay increase. And then I thought, well, you know, Ontario teachers are very well paid already. They have a strong union. They have good pensions. They have a good vacation time. But most importantly, on top of all of that, they do a great job with our kids. And how do we know that? We know that because the premier, Premier Doug Ford, often will get up at the mic and brag about the educated workforce in Ontario. So, you you know, it's, you, you can't have it both ways. I mean, if we have a great educated workforce, we have to give credit to that, to the teacher. So, and I do. So I was, like I say, I was a little shocked a year ago when I heard that um, Mr. Lecce was making this claim. And of course, when I peeled back the onion and started weeping about the, the misinformation here, because They were not seeking a 52% increase. In fact, the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, uh, which is the largest uh, public teachers union in the province with 60,000 members, they also represent other members, custodians, recreational assistants, secretaries, clerical staff, early childhood educators, child and youth development workers. These are people who help children with autism and behavioral issues in the classroom. Well, those people, not teachers, but the assistants and people helping to run the system, you know, grease the wheel to keep it going. Those people are making on average between $39,000 and $45,000 a year. And of course, the problem with that is that is not a living wage. We did a, a series last year on some of these uh, support workers. I recall uh, one of our writers did a piece on this guy, Chris Boris, who is a, an educational worker. He worked with kids who had behavioral issues. Really bright guy. But he's also moonlighting at the Marriott as a bartender. And he's also moonlighting as a comedian at Yak Yaks to make ends meet for his own family. So if we're going to put a value in our education system, we have to make sure that we're we're being straight with the facts, honest with how we're adjudicating processes, and, and also as it relates to how we're paying people. So today I'm pleased to have in the studio Karen Littlewood, who is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Karen, welcome. I'd like to start by asking you, what do you think that Ontario Education Minister Stephen Lecce made that claim that that the union was seeking a 52% pay increase? Thought. What are your thoughts? I, I I asked myself that too. Um, we started bargaining July 20th of 2022. It's 2023 now, and nothing has changed in what he's saying. Nothing has changed other than they're funding education 
even less than they were then, about $600 less per pupil. We do not have a collective agreement. We have been bargaining since July of 2020, both for 2022, both for our education workers and our teachers, and there is zero progress. The Minister of Education is not committing to invest in the students of the province. And I think the message he's sending to them is, you know, we we really don't care about you. Okay. Let me just try to sort of just back a step because I'm really trying to understand this both as a a parent. My kids are, fortunately, they're they're out of high school and they're, you know, hopefully soon into the university system. But the point is, I've been there, done that. And Am I to understand that during COVID, I mean, it was an awful time. I mean, COVID was a calamity for kids mm-hmm. and high school and teachers and remote learning, and it caused all kinds of anxiety and social yep. social problems that you're, I'm sure, teachers are dealing with now. But can you explain to me? I under I I was under the understanding that because of COVID and during COVID, the Ontario government got a billion dollars in extra funding. Is that true? About two billion, actually, from the federal government, and it was not spent. So, how does that work? They, the, the feds, say uh, we recognize that the provinces are having these issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would assume it would be the Minister of Human Resources in Ottawa who would who would say, "Okay, we're going to provide the provinces with additional funding." Isn't that funding continued? Isn't there an agreement? If the feds aren't going to give this money, wouldn't they have to say, well, to get the money, we want proof you're spending it on education? That would make sense. We are in a deficit position in Canada in that we don't have a federal minister of education. We don't have someone who's responsible. And the provinces are given money like that, and there is zero accountability. I I think that really is a major problem when we're taking taxpayer money that's supposed to be directed to support the schools and support the students, and it isn't. And in fact, what happened was boards were trying to figure out on their own how to make things work. They were digging into their reserves. They had special permission from the government to use reserves for this. They have to refill those reserves now, so they're obligated to do that, yet that money from the federal government wasn't distributed. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, why? Okay, but let me ask you this. So, you, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm going to assume, I never assume, but I'm going to assume in this yep. case, that you've you've had a discussion, you've talked to Mr. Lecce. Wouldn't, wouldn't, like, isn't it, or am I just, you know, obtuse, but isn't it fundamentally dishonest if the, if you're, if someone says, look, I'm giving you a billion dollars, there's only one taxpayer. So we're going to take money from the federal largesse here. Mm-hmm. We're going to give it to Ontario, but you need to spend that. It was to be spent in schools and education. It was COVID supports. It was supposed to be COVID support. So Did instead of fine with COVID support, meant? well, it should have been, could have been additional staffing. It could have been additional supports. There were extra custodians that were hired, um, but it could have been supplies too. Right now in the province of Ontario, there are stockpiles of hand sanitizer that are just sitting there that boards used their own money from their own board accounts and, and spent on that thinking they needed that for the students. And, you know, hopefully we're in a place right now where we don't need all of that hand sanitizer and all of those masks. But there was no general direction from the the ministry to say, this is how it should be spent. We'll give you this money. They were delayed in sending out masks. They sent out inferior masks. Uh, People were at risk because of the inaction of the provincial government and ignoring the fact that they could have been investing. But wouldn't the boards 
who spent this money out of their reserve. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in, in any business, I mean, this government talks a lot about business, yep. things like business people were business, right? I mean, this, if you spend money on this side of the ledger and mm -hmm. you say, okay, well, we're spending that out of our research, but we're getting it back because the feds are giving us yep. money. So they're not getting that money back? No. So I just want to point out something else because you, you raised an interesting point. You talked about that there's not a federal sort of minister related to education. Of course, we know just for the listeners that education under the Constitution is a provincial jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. But I, I would point out that uh, Indigenous students are under the federal jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And I, we looked into the numbers in this as well. For every $10 spent in Ontario on a student, let's say a student is $10 a day, mm -hmm. it may be a little more now, going back a couple of years, like four years ago, it was an average $10 a day per student. It was a dollar seventy-five per Indigenous student. Mm -hmm. So we talk about um, diversity and fairness and justice and all of these things, but the reality is the feds for the students that they have to adjudicate and manage right now, they're providing eighty percent less funding for those Indigenous yeah. students now. So then they turn around and they give the OSS, sorry, the, the Ontario government, this money, and then you, as the president of the union. You're sitting there and you're looking at this and you're thinking, well, hang on a second. So then what what, what sort of led you, like, what did you do? Like, just sort of take us through that. I mean, Yeah, so we've been talking about it in the media, but you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that we've had conversations with the minister. We haven't actually. So we, we speak with the bureaucrats at Queen's Park in the Ministry of Education. We don't have those direct conversations with the Ministry of Education, which is also quite unusual. Yeah. You're not, you're, you're, he is not <laughs> met with you? No. No. That's crazy. No, I, I know. You represent the largest teachers union in the province. One, the elementary teachers is, yes. is a bit larger, but yes, okay. we're, we're significant. I mean, yes. It's large. Mm -hmm. And and the Minister of Education has never sat in a room with you? He's not meeting with us. He's not meeting with elementary teachers, Catholic teachers, the French teachers. No. So, so this I think the broader discussion I wanted to get into because I just don't understand this, both as a parent and as an observer of what's going on in terms of politics and education mm -hmm. in the province. Is it is it that toxic that that I mean, are teachers the enemy? I mean, I don't understand this. If, if I was like, surely. Like if I was the minister of education, mm -hmm. and and I knew there was, you know, four unions, for example, and I, the first thing I would do would be to say, "Hey, get, you want to have an espresso? You want to get together? Mm -hmm. Can we talk? Can we?" You don't. That hasn't happened. No, I sent the minister um, of education a letter in January talking about violence in the schools because that's another one of our, our major issues. And it took four months and the deputy minister wrote back and said, uh, thank you very much. And here's a link to the reporting tools that we created two years ago. There was nothing. We wanted to get together and have an action table. So that was ignored. I sent a letter talking about the need to develop indigenous curriculum across all grade levels. I haven't received a response at all to that yet. Yet I've just finished a meeting with the Canadian Teachers Federation with presidents from across the country where they can text their Minister of Education. They meet regularly. They meet at least once a month or twice a month. I was in New Zealand. I was invited there to speak at an education summit. 
And I met the Minister of Education. I went into the Parliament. I met with the Minister of Education for half an hour. I'm like, why does this not happen in Ontario? So, you know, I, as I sort of reflect back on this, I go back to the government of uh, Mike Harris, mm -hmm. the Conservative government of Mike Harris in the 90s. And, and you know, I, this is my own observation. I thought that some of the things they did in, in the province were good. Um, I think one of the problems today in politics, we get so polarized with issues. But one of the things I recall, though, at the time, I didn't know back 30 years, they had a guy named John Snobble. Yeah. Okay, John Snobble. And this guy was, it was, we talk about things that are leaked in the media today or go on TikTok or show up on, on, mm -hmm. on Instagram. But back then, which was, a, you know, back when there was a dial phone and all that stuff, he, there was a, th a recorded leak of him mm -hmm. saying, let's create a crisis in education to, to sort of present teachers as the adversary and the enemy. And I just remember thinking, why, why would you create a crisis right. if there isn't a crisis? Right. And I think that really sucked a lot of the trust out of just the fact that a minister would be saying that. That's right. And again, I don't want to, I don't want to align the entire Harris government because I thought like th there was, there were some people in that government that did some good things, but I was, was shocked by that. Mm -hmm. And it, it appears to me that, that maybe much hasn't changed in there. Why did they see teachers as the enemy? It, you know, it hasn't changed at all. In 2018, when they were first elected, Ernst and Young did a report and it said, you know, according to the government, one of the major problems in education is that it doesn't generate income. And I'm thinking, pardon me? Like, this is in print. The problem of education is it doesn't generate income. Yeah, well, <laughs> and this is where, like, you know, uh, sort of stupid meets obtuse when you get these reports. Because, of course, um, the person writing that probably needed a can of oxygen because maybe what they didn't realize is that actually edu education creates billions of dollars of wealth because educated people are the people in the economy that create the businesses that work in the yeah. companies that work in the corporations yeah. that work in the services jobs that are that have the talent and skill to to allow Ontario to thrive. That's exactly right. We we commissioned a report from the Conference Board of Canada which is not a left-leaning organization. No. This was in 2019 and we wanted to know the value of education and they came back with stats and data that show that Every dollar spent on education in Ontario brings a dollar thirty back to the economy. For exactly that reason, educated people take better care of their health, and they're not necessarily in the judicial system. Social services, we save on everything. So when the government turns around and I'm presenting to them about the budget, and they say, "Well, where do you want the money to come from? You know, you want more for education. Where? What are you going to take it out of? We're generating income. It is an investment, and that's what we should be doing. You, you wanted to generate income." It happens when you invest in education. You're saving money. For every dollar you take out, you're losing a dollar thirty. So um, I want to, I want to, just for the the listeners here, just sort of respond to that in a, in a bit of a different way because there will be some who will say, like it's it's. So we agree it's it's a polarized relationship, mm -hmm. absolutely, and that's a problem. Yeah. And I think we would agree. I, I would certainly concur with you that education is an investment. Education creates great wealth. Yep. Okay. Um, but I, let's just sort of go back. We After the snobbling thing with the Harris government, and then there was a change, and then the McGinty government came into power. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Dalton McGinty, I think, was a supporter of, of education and, and, and teachers. His wife was a teacher yep. or his spouse, actually. 
Um, and they, they put a lot of investments in education. Then, then there was a strike. There was a strike. Uh, and then I, I, I sensed at that moment when the strike happened, there was some anger mm-hmm. at the union yep. at the time. Because at that time, as I recall, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, some of the teachers said, well, we're not going to do extracurricular activities. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that because the government's not playing ball. Um, can you just comment on that? Is, I mean, is that a fair comment? Um, I mean, you, you get it from all angles here, right? So I'm yeah. just trying to sort of yeah. lay the groundwork here. This is what people are saying. So what would your response to that be? Well, I just want to be careful not to fall into that trap that the conservative government is putting us in saying, well, you don't get along with any government. That's not true. In fact, we've gotten along with governments in the past, but when they turn on us, Bill 115 was introduced by those liberals. Can and you that- just take us back and, and give us the synopsis of 115? Yeah. I know it is, but why don't you tell yeah. us? Yeah. So Bill 115 basically... Um, imposed um, an agreement on us. And it also took away um, our sick leave, which, you know, that's to be debated whether that was a good thing or not. Um, I think all Ontarians, all Canadians deserve to have paid sick time. So that's a completely different issue. But when they did that, um, we challenged them and we ended up winning that court challenge as well, that it was an unconstitutional bill. We've done the same thing with Bill 124 in the last couple of years in Ontario, which restricted our increases to 1% for a period of three years. We challenged that. We won it. It's unconstitutional, but the Ford government is now appealing it because they know it's going to cost them a lot of money. Now, there was a point where the Ford government tried to use a not or threatened to use a standing clause. Yep. Can you just tell us about, I mean, I again, I thought that the non-standing clause yeah. is not supposed to be for anything. That's right. And they just used it. They were so cavalier. Now, he had to back off of that, but can you go through that for a second? Well, and they've used it twice, which yeah. is really quite unprecedented. The first time, because they didn't like how people were able to speak freely during elections, so they used it there. But then they used it against the 55,000 CUPE workers, majority women, who were going on strike, trying to say that you know they, they deserved more. They are not paid enough, and they are the people working two and three and four jobs. And our members in OSSTF in the same job classes are doing the same thing. So they used the not- standing clause and they imposed a collective agreement on them and they told them that they weren't allowed to strike. So, you know, that's where Canadians got together and said, this is really not acceptable in a country like Canada. So I, I would say that given that, that was for me, when, that was a sort of serendipitous moment for me when I, realizing those things, saw you in Ottawa basically telling these people, well, we're not doing that. That's right. We're not you're not doing that. And, I, you know, I, I recall having a discussion with some friends uh, who who are sort of middle-of-the-road people, and they were sort of going on about, they had bought into a bit of what the Lecce thing was, and I was pointing out, well, they're not getting this big raise. And I said, you know, these, these are assistants, mm-hmm. clerks, the janitors, the people that you need those people in the school to help yep. run the schools to educate your kids Mm -hmm. and they're not, they're not able to provide a living on the wages they're getting. Right. So how do you, how do you, um, when you're negotiating, like do the people across the table not understand this? (laughs) (laughs) Like, can you help me out here? I'm going to give credit to the people. The people across the table don't have the mandate to get a deal. I don't think they've been told, let's figure out how to get a deal here. They're, they're coming to the table. 
Things are slow. We were threatened all last summer and into the fall. You know, there will be stability and there will be no job actions this year. There weren't any job actions from OSSTF. You know, we, we didn't. Our members provided stabilities to the students of the province. We were there every day through the other little COVID waves that came along. We were there providing that stability, that safe return to school for students. So they had some sense of normalcy. You know, that's that's what we were doing and that's where we were, yet the government is continuing to not put anything on the table that would allow for us to be able to have a deal that we could take to our members and say, this should be ratified. So after the September sort of showdown, as I as I mm-hmm. can you just take us through what happened next? <laughs> Well, not much bargaining happened next. We've had a couple days a month at the most. We have two different tables, one for ed workers, one for teachers. We've had, I don't even think we've had 20 days for each of the tables over the course of the of the last year. We're coming up to the one year anniversary of beginning bargaining and and things aren't happening. Yet in the midst of all of that, We've got policy changes that are coming in that are also going to affect classes going forward. So the apprenticeship program where kids are going to leave school possibly at 15 and go and work to be apprentices. I, I I don't disagree that there's a need for people in the trades, but we already, as teachers with our programs, have many opportunities for students to go into the trades and still graduate from high school. If we're going to enter into an apprentice program where they're going out at 15, if it doesn't work out for them, then what happens? You know, like having mandatory tech in grade nine and 10 is great. We need students to be interested in the tech courses, but you know, the government just isn't providing any of the supports in place. So as we're trying to bargain, they're putting in new curriculum. They introduced a new language curriculum. It came out in printed copy on the 20th of June. And what did the minister say in the media? Well, the teachers will work hard all summer to make sure that they're ready. Okay, but that type of planning should be happening collaboratively. There should be professional development. There should be direction from the board. There should be guidance. Ministry should be saying this is how to implement, not giving it to us 10 days before the school ends and expecting on September 1st, it's all going to be in place. So in essence, what you're saying is the the relationship is, is still very much adversarial. The negotiation process is very disingenuous. This is a, a process of hemorrhaging, really, where they're just trying to, pardon the blunt expression, bleed you guys out and just see see if they can just weigh you down. I'm sort of at a loss. I just keep coming back to uh, how is this helping kids. How is this helping kids? That's exactly it. Uh, I mean, just to your comment about the technical apprenticeship schools, where we talk about students who have, and there's going to be a lot more of them in the next mm-hmm. few years with anxiety issues and, and, and other related social anxieties and things from post-COVID, yep. but you've already got kids on the spectrum with, mm-hmm. with you know, whether it's autism or attention deficit disorder, Asperger's. And my concern as a parent would be, if you're telling some 14 or 15 year old kid, I mean, when you're 15 or, you, you know, when I was 14, you know, my big thing was I was, I would like open the fridge to see how the light went on, you know, how did it go on when you, you know, I mean, you're not, you know, you're not focused on certain yeah. things, right? You're, so if they're trying to get you at that age to say, oh, you're going to go into an electrical program, you're going to go to this, yeah. is, is that really in the student's best interest? Isn't it better? to let them graduate (laughs) 
and to yes. have a rounded education yeah. and give them opportunities because maybe that's not going to work out. I know for a fact lots of kids, for example, who've had uh, Asperger's. Mm-hmm. They're, 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 I know several who were told in grade 10, well, you'll never go to university. Mm-hmm. You'll never go to this. You'll that's never right. go to that. And it's just not true. That's and right. you know what makes a difference? The teacher. That's right. That's right. The The youth apprenticeship program is a great pathway for kids to get into that while still taking courses at school, while still taking math and science and the courses that they might need for those apprenticeships. We have specialist high skills majors courses that students go into. I think students should have a wide variety of opportunities and not be making a decision at age 15 or 16 that this is where I'm going to go. In fact, it's exactly what the government is saying is needed as they de-stream, as they get rid of the, the advanced and apply in basic courses. They're saying we shouldn't be determining a student's future, yet they're doing exactly that by saying you can leave school, go make money at 15 and and become an apprentice. So what is, I mean, I I, honestly, I could could talk to you about the education issues uh, in this province for hours. Uh But if you could, it it was up to you. you know, Karen, because I mean, you, you, you represent a lot of people in this province, yep. a lot of teachers. Okay. But if it was up to you and you, you could say, okay, if I could have a blank canvas and mm-hmm. try to make this work. Yeah. What, what would you, what would your message be to Premier Ford and the government and Mr. Lecce or, that you see as, you know, the steps that could make things work better? Yeah. So you have to start by making sure that you have the caring adults in the building and that you have enough of them. We have staffing crises right now in the province. We don't have a shortage of teachers. We don't have a shortage of workers. We have a shortage of good jobs. And that's that's a major issue. But we have to be looking. It does cost money. It takes money in order to make sure that students have what they need. Since 2018, the per-pupil funding has been reduced by $1,200. of it just this year. Yet the Minister of Education will say historic spending on education. It's not. He's not factoring in inflation. They're not looking at the fact that there's less money now and the money goes less far. Like it's, it's really incredibly challenging. And what's happening, school boards, the Ottawa School Board for one, the Toronto School Board have all struggled to make a budget and make ends meet. They don't know where they're going to be able. They're cutting programs. They're cutting special ed programs. They're cutting transportation. They have to do cuts so that they can have a balanced budget because the ministry says they have to, yet the ministry's not doing their part. The ministry's not investing. We've got to make sure we have all those supports in place from JK to grade 12 and beyond to make sure that we have citizens who are going to be going out and joining the workforce and choosing a job for themselves and having all the skills and, and tools that they need. And that's not the message that the Minister of Education or the Ford government is giving to students right now. They're saying, you'll figure it out. Well, I I have to tell you, one of the things that I've always found strangely ironic when it comes to Education Ontario and the people who administrate the system, it's, you know, we talk about having programs and doing things, we have to watch out for the most vulnerable mm-hmm. in society. And certainly in education, those are the special ed kids. Yep. And 
they need extra supports. And those extra supports, that can be hard work. When you That's have right. like an autistic child or someone in the class, the teacher needs the other help in the classroom yep. to manage that child. If they don't, it can just make it really difficult for the whole class and they need that support. But I always found it ironic that whenever we start talking about these issues, the first thing they want to cut, mm-hmm. the first program they want to cut is for the special ed students. That's right. It's the same thing with the federal government. I just want to go back to, as we're, as we're closing in the end of this particular podcast, I, I want to go back to something that I, I thought you said that was very telling, which was when you mentioned the Indigenous kids, you know, and you talked about funding. Mm-hmm. And you raise a really good point. And I, I think it's something that listeners should really think about. If the federal government, there's one taxpayer, mm-hmm. if the federal government's going to give money to Ontario, a billion buck, $2 billion for mm-hmm. education, that money should be going into education or they should be taking it back. Mm-hmm. That's they should, right. They, they should be just taking it back. They can claw it back. Yeah. But my other observation is that the federal government itself gets a failing mark on the, on the Indigenous fall in mm-hmm. education. I mean, for all the stuff they talk about, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Committee and all the things they want to do, the reality is they have not increased Indigenous funding for Indigenous students. They're still getting you know, almost 80% yep. less on a daily basis than the, the other students. So you raise a really interesting point about this this federal a federal authority in that mm-hmm. way, which, of course, the provinces would argue against because of the Constitution. But you make a good point, something to think about. Yeah, well, they, they argue against it, but they're also just passing the buck. And that's exactly what ha- is happening. The federal government says, well, we can't, it's provincial jurisdiction. And the provinces are saying, well, we need more money and the Fed should give us, like, somebody's got to take accountability and somebody's got to take action. And you're exactly right. You know, we have the truth and reconciliation and the recommendations, and they're not happening. That's a major, major issue. I, you know, I'll go back to, I just spent some time in New Zealand. I was invited there for education purposes, and I couldn't believe how much further advanced they are in truth and reconciliation. And I think that's what I want it to be like in Canada, where in New Zealand, they say, if we do it right for the Maori people, we're doing it right for everyone. Why can't we take that in Canada and say that if we're considering the First Nation Métis Inuit people first and do what's right for them, it will be right for everyone in Canada. That's where we need to be headed. Well, on that note, and I just want to repeat what Karen has just said she's talking about action and accountability, and uh, I think that those are the the two key words that I think are, will be the bellwether in education. Yep. And um, look, I I want to thank you, uh, Karen Littlewood, the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, for coming in and speaking with us today about these important issues, and we look forward to continuing the conversation. And I have to say, I really I, I wish you well. I hope that the people in this province and the parents in this province understand the importance of the custodians, educational assistants, secretaries, clerical staff, early childhood educators, the child and youth workers who work with their kids, you know, to help them achieve it in the classroom. And we got to pay for this yeah. because it's an investment. Mm-hmm. And contrary to the obtuse fellow with the, who came out with the study saying we don't get any money out of education, <laughs> we're making billions out of our education system. Yes. Smart young people. Yes. So, Karen, thank you very much for coming in. Yeah. And I, I'm, I really look forward to speaking to you again. Good luck with your negotiations. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me here. Well, folks, thanks for joining us again for the Auto Life Magazine podcast. Uh, we had a great discussion today with. 
Karen Linwood, the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, and we encourage you to keep your eye on the dial and come back and join us again soon because uh, our coming episodes feature some great guests, including Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie, who's running for the leadership of the Ontario Liberal Party. And then, of course, uh, after we have Bonnie on, we're going to have Nathaniel Orchman-Smith, who's a Toronto federal liberal MP who's also running for now for the Ontario Liberal Party uh, leadership. And we have a number of other guests coming on uh, over the summer from the arts and politics community. So we look forward to talking to you next time.